0: Hey guys, we have a new giveaway this week. Thanks to our partner Beta, we will be giving away the Luxum Weighted Blanket. Did you know that it's scientifically proven that weighted blankets can cause chemical changes in your body to help you relax and sleep better? By increasing serotonin and melatonin, the Luxon weighted blanket helps you sleep better and gives you enhanced mood. It also decreases cortisol levels, which helps to reduce stress and anxiety. We're giving away 5 of these weighted blankets this week to our listeners. All you have to do is enter the giveaway at www.mission.org/giveaway, and we will be giving away 5 of these to our lucky listeners. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad and Ian sit down with Brett Taylor, Chief Product Officer at Salesforce. Brett has had a remarkable career as a tech entrepreneur. He founded FriendFeed, one of the first social networks, co-created Google Maps, and served as the CTO of Facebook, all prior to his current role as President and Chief Product Officer at Salesforce. On this episode, Chad and Ian sit down with Brett to discuss some of the early lessons he learned through starting his first company, how he landed his first job out of college at Google, and advice he has for first time entrepreneurs.
1: Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here in Salesforce Tower. I'm joined by Ian Faison. Ian, it's been a
2: while. Yeah, I know. It's been too long. For our listeners, I see him every day, but we don't podcast as much as we should. And we do this for a living. (laughs) So, Brett, fun fact Ian is actually
1: from where you are in Oakland. So, I was hoping to start the interview with where you grew up, what that was like, and uh, yeah, start at the origins.
3: Yeah, so I was born in Oakland, 1980, Oakland Kaiser. Um, Kaiser, another great Oakland company, and uh, spent most of my childhood there. Um, it was a great time in Oakland. The Bash Brothers and... In, 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 uh, Go Ace. In Go Ace. One of the few Ace fans in the Bay Area. Uh, Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. It was a very good time to be a kid in the Bay Area. Lots of good sports. And uh, and yeah, my mom worked for Chevron, which is based in the Bay Area. And uh, and the, so we ended up moving around a little bit um, later in my life just because she was an executive there and got transferred, but my identity is strictly rooted in Oakland. So big Oakland fan. Very cool.
1: What places did you move or how
3: often? Uh, So moved to um, Georgia um, because uh, actually, you know, it was one of those things when you're a kid, I don't really know what my mom was doing, but got moved to Georgia. Um, And it was an awkward time because basically I was moving right around middle school, which is, uh, I think for every human being, probably the most awkward time in your life. So myself included. And I ended up going to like four schools in three years, just by bad luck, you know, like when you move. So I was like going from elementary school to middle school, moving right before that. And uh, probably the best thing I took away from Georgia, I, I ended up playing football there and loving football. It's like a requirement. If you're male, you have to like play football there. There's people kidding. that knock on no, your door. <laughs> it is. And so, um, but you know, it was interesting. I think you end up be much more independent when you have to constantly go into a new school, establish your identity Um, So I think a lot of my probably entrepreneurial tendencies were at least amplified by that just because I think I went in kind of having to forge my own path a little bit. I became more confident in myself um, having going into lots of new schools like that. So I don't think it was super fun at the time, you know, because it's sort of a socially awkward time in your life. But I look back on it and I said, I really came out a more independent human being. It's when I moved back to California um, around high school. I think I was a much more independent person, and I think that's really served me well, particularly if I sort of look at my own psychology and willingness to take risks and start companies. I, um, it was uh, hard, but it paid off. You know, I really feel fortunate to have that kind of independent um, sure. ad- aspect of my personality. You know, it's funny. So I, I played football in high school too, and I was the
2: 22nd best player on the team. I was like officially <laughs> a starter and like we won the championships. So our team was really good, but I was the worst and I never like felt like a leader. And it was always one of the like earliest leadership lessons for me, which was this idea that like, I never felt good enough to be a leader. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to go tell all of the good players like what to do, but it's something that like kind of sticks with you is like, when you get in the business world, you can be the best. You need to go figure out a way to like learn and grow.
3: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about football for me was that uh, it is really a team sport. You know, whether you're the 22nd or 5th best person on the team, you, you have to do your job. That kind of camaraderie reminds me a little bit of a startup. Interesting about small businesses and startups is that you all really um, feel like you're in it together. Um, and that's really unique because... You know, essentially, especially for a technology startup, your success is inextricably tied with the company's success, and that's not true of a job at a larger firm, right? You know, and I think it removes a lot of the politics you'd see at a larger company, and you end up with this sense of camaraderie that is so hard to describe unless you've been in it, um, and I'm sure you all feel it in your own startup, and. Uh, And I actually, that's probably the emotion I feel uh, that actually is really contiguous. You know, my starting two companies is that sense of camaraderie and that sense of team. Um, And actually still super close to all the people that, you know, especially the early employees of my two, my two startups. Uh, It feels very similar to that feeling I had in in that football in Georgia. Very cool.
1: And um, where did your entrepreneurial journey start? Did it start with building websites? Was that the first attempt or were there a couple before that?
3: Yeah, that was no, that was my first attempt. Um, so my 16th birthday, I uh, got in a um, $700 car that I'd saved up for a 1971 VW bus and got my license and decided to drive Sharp. to the movie theater. That was, that was pretty cool back then. And I rear-ended a car in the parking lot. It wasn't even moving by. Though. It was a parked car <laughs> in the parking lot. So pretty awesome. 16-year-old. Right you, though, yeah, sure. was, yeah. Came out of nowhere uh, sitting there in the parking lot. And it was like a, I don't know, some fancy car. I can't remember, but it was like a really nice car. So I did, you know, I was honest. I left a note and put on the windshield and uh, I got a call about a month later. It was long enough that I thought I had sort of like the guy just let me off. you know. was <laughs> like, yes. You know? And I get the call and it's like, is Brett Taylor there? I'm like, this is Brett Taylor. It's like, uh, a month ago, you rear-ended my car in the parking lot. I'm like, oh man, he's just a procrastinator. I didn't get away with it. <laughs> um, and he said, no, 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 it's fine. Insurance covered it, but I own a gas station and I've had some trouble with people stealing from the cash register. You seem like a really honest young man. Would you like a summer job? And I actually already had a summer job lined up, but I just, I was so, like, I felt this deep sense of obligation because I'd rear-ended his car. So I'm like, yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> and so I ended up working at this gas station all summer, the 76 station, and uh, basically cleaned the bathrooms, changed oil, pumped gas. Cleaning the bathroom of a gas station off the highway is not a wonderful profession um, in case you're considering career changes. But next door, there was a BMW service center. Um, and I don't know, in the parking lot, you know, getting going into work and talking to the guy and finding out he needed a web page and he was having trouble finding someone to do it. And, I offered to do it. He ended up paying me $200 to make their web page. I just taught myself how to do HTML, um, which was relatively new at the time, made the web page. And I was earning $425 an hour before taxes at the time. So that $200 was like more than I had earned the entire summer. So I immediately quit that job and started going around door to door in my town offering web pages. I made it for a saddle making company, a flower shop. A couple law firms, a mechanic. um, So that was my first business. I made business cards. I never incorporated. So, but I had to seem really official. So
2: I love it. You know, I had a 1974 Chevy Nova that I bought for $900 with my summer money. So I'm right there with you. This 70s (laughs) car, uh, maybe it's just like a staple. But it was so for me it was like the fact that I bought it with my own money that I earned as like, you know, a 15 year old working at Waterworld. I was like, my my dad was like, you can do whatever you want. It's your money. It was like one of those early lessons of like, oh man, if you if you do the work, you get to have the reward, you know?
3: Yeah. And it was also incredibly liberating. I remember the feeling with technology where I was uh, 16, 17 at the time. And I was you know, actually running a business and it just that sense of independence and liberation. And it was really, it was, it was addictive. You know, you just feel this sense of, wow, I can do this, you know, and especially technology is interesting too, because I think um, especially as a 16 or 17 year old, you're not really intimidated by new technology because right. it feels kind of native to your life. You see this a lot with new messaging apps that younger people use that, you know, you always hear, Older generations sort of make jokes around like i don't understand Snapchat or whatever it is, <laughs> but it's native to you, so it's one area where you know your youth is sort of an asset because you have a beginner 's mind about all these new technologies and how they can work so all of a sudden you know and normally when you're sixteen, people are dismissive of you when it comes to technology they're like, hello, mr inexperienced sixteen year old teach me how the internet works yeah. and it was a very all of a sudden I had a a presence that i didn't have before, and it really reinforced what was already there perhaps on my you know, wanting some independence, but it was a really, really cool experience as a, as a teenager.
1: Very cool. So I'd love to hear some of the uh, fly on the wall conversations that were going on between you, your family and your friends at this point, right? Because this is probably something that's like a bit anomalous. Um, I'm sure, you know, your mother's an executive and I'm sure they were supportive of you, but it's also like a new thing, right? You're out there taking money from people, starting a business. Where Was there a lot of encouragement? Was it just like, oh, cool. Um, what was the feedback like?
3: You know, it's weird. I don't remember getting a lot from my family. I think there was definitely, you know, I, but I used it to, um, again, get that financial independence, you know. And so I basically enabled me to, um, that car that I mentioned, that 1971 VW bus broke all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Thank you to the Bug Stop in Walnut Creek. I'm not sure if it's still there. They specialized (laughs) in repairing old VWs and I spent almost all the money I earned fixing that horrible car. I love it. Were there any perfect beach days or anything like that made that made up for it? It was just, it was a very cool car. Just, uh, just old, but it was really great. I mean, I do feel like the, um, the things that it taught me were just, you know, I was shy. I was, um, you know, to walk in and essentially the equivalent of cold calling, you know, even whether it's a florist or mechanic and say, Hey, I want to teach you about the internet. You should have a web page. you know, here's why. I learned how, I was implicitly, though I don't think I'd articulate to form, I was learning marketing. I was learning how to do public speaking. I was learning how to be present with people who are older than me and uh, learn about people's businesses so that I could articulate a value proposition. Those types of things are, you know, I think you being, uh, whether you're a small business or an entrepreneur, you learn things a different way because you end up becoming the Jack or Jill of all trades. And I think that I look back on that and it was just, I learned more in that experience than a lot of the, you know, um, parts of my sort of formal education. And just it was such an incredible experience.
1: Definitely. So what was the next jump after that? Was it more formal education? Was it college um, or was it into the business world?
3: Yeah. So I went to Stanford and it was an interesting time because I was there during the dot-com bubble, both the peak of it and after it burst. So I started in 1998, graduated in 02, master's 03. You know, in 1999, if you went to the job fair at Stanford in the computer science department where I was, it was just like a party. I mean, just startups galore. Every single day in the computer lab, a company would deliver free pizza to, <laughs> as a recruiting gimmick. Sure. I mean, it was just the coolest department to be in. And then you contrast that to like 2002. And it was like you go to the job fair and it was like tumbleweed <laughs> blowing <laughs> through. And uh, the way that it impacted on me as I saw, you know, sort of the optimism of the technology industry, the excess of it as well. Um, There's a lot of opportunism uh, sort of in that early period. And then after the dot-com bubble burst, I think for those of us who are like real technologists or, you know, identify as that, it was kind of refreshing because the people who remained were the people who are like really devoted to innovation and, you know, and not just, you know, business opportunism in some ways. (laughs) But I also feel very fortunate because that's how I discovered Google. So a woman who was a TA um, at Stanford when I was also a TA, it was named Marissa Meyer. She had gone to Google. She graduated a little bit before me. And that was one of the few companies that survived the apocalypse of the dot-com bubble bursting. Sure. And she reached out about this associate product manager program she was starting at Google, which was essentially a program to hire technology or engineering um, oriented students from college and teach them how to be product managers through the experience of doing it rather than getting something like an MBA or formal education. And there wasn't a lot going on then. I there's a couple other companies I was talking to, but that was certainly the most interesting. And, uh, And I feel very fortunate that both I got to know Marissa at Stanford, but also that People ask, like, how did you discover Google so early on? I'm like, I just lucked out. <laughs> so it was the one company left <laughs> sure. after the dot-com yeah. bubble burst. And, um, and so ended up there, and that was my first job out of college.
2: It's hilarious you were both TAs. That is so great.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, did man. Did you major in symbolic systems, or what was it? Uh, computer science. So which was at the time, I think was called Symbolic Systems or something no, like that? No,
3: so Symbolic Systems was a major that was sort of a mix between logic gotcha. and philosophy and computer science. That oh, was my okay, gotcha. major, but I was a uh, computer science for both undergrad and master's.
1: Very cool. So I'm curious, what did the APM program look like at that time and how was it uh, sold to you? How was it presented when you first encountered it?
3: The idea of the APM program was that Product management um, at Google was somewhat uniquely technical. It was a company that had a huge percentage of PhD students <laughs> in computer science, and they sort of uh, prided itself on being a very engineering-driven company. Um, and I think that, as articulated to me, Marissa was having a hard time finding product managers who were sort of adept in technology, you know, truly adept. Who could sit with a PhD in computer science and have an intelligent conversation about how do we increase the size of the Google index by 10 billion pages? You know, very technical problems. So the thesis was, let's take computer science students and train them to be product managers rather than, you know, take people who identified later in life as that, who went through sort of a traditional business education. That evolved over time. I think that was the original intention. And really, it became a program to take people out of college and have them do a rotational program around Google. And after two years, really sort of figure out where their identity was as a product manager um, and kind of learn the Google way of doing product management. It was a remarkable program, though, because the camaraderie of the people in that program, which was relatively small, call it like 12 to 20 per class, was remarkable. And it meant that You not only had your manager and your team, but you had this group of people sort of distributed around the company that you could ask for advice, uh, you know, from... And similarly, because you rotate around the company, you really got a really broad perspective on how the company worked. Um, and as a consequence, I'm still very close friends with all the people in that first class of associate product managers at Google. Um, I still go to them for career advice. Many of them are very, very senior leaders at Google now and very senior leaders in the industry. Some of them started companies like me. Uh, Jess Lee, who was in the second APM class, was the first uh, female investor at Sequoia. Like it's pretty cool. This whole network, a of Polyvore. Yeah. yeah. All started out of the my first startups offices actually. Oh um, very and cool. and uh so it was a, it's a remarkable network. And actually, when I came to Salesforce, that was one of the first things that I did is start an associate product management program here with similar ambitions, which is let's get some of the best and brightest engineering students in the country and have them um, not only learn how to do product management the, like, the way we do it at Salesforce, but also influence us and form that network right. that really spans the company, change our culture, um, and kind of bring a new perspective into our product management program.
1: Very cool. So I'm curious to know about the APM program, because uh, it sounds like it was kind of like a hotbed for forming culture, for forming like ethos. And, you know, if you love technology, if you're ready to geek out about something, that seems like the place to do it. Um, I'm curious, like, were, was it all like similar interests? Was it diverse? Was it, uh, yeah, what was, what was it like when you met the class of 12 or 20?
3: Yeah. So, it's a remarkably diverse group of people um, by all measures, you know, backgrounds, um, ethnicity, um, specialization in school. Uh, but I think the one thing that defines it is I think people who are passionate about technology. Um, I would say some common characteristics. It tends to be a group of people who are passionate about leadership, you know, and I think that's what draws you to go from maybe being engineering to product management passionate about not just technology, but the business of technology. Again, sort of why would you make that shift from being maybe programming to um, product management? I think that uh, thanks in large part to Marissa's leadership and advocacy for this program, I think the brand of that program now is the camaraderie that comes with it as well. And the opportunity to really um, have that leadership development a component of your job as opposed to just having a job. Um, sure. And uh, so that's something I've really tried to borrow here. And in fact, Marissa was generous enough to come into Salesforce and tell us the secrets of how <laughs> she established it. And there are a lot of, you know, these programs to, you know, have them successful. You really have to get all the details right. Um, and to make sure you're pairing people with the right projects and the right managers. And I'm really hopeful. I mean, you can check check in with me in five years. <laughs> and I'm hopeful that this first class of associate product managers at Salesforce, which I just uh, introduced today, oh, congrats. Um, I think they'll be the leaders of the company in, in five years.
1: Very cool. So what does that first batch look like uh, for you? Could you tell us about it? And uh, yeah, wh- what are your plans for the Salesforce APM program?
3: Yeah, so really similar, uh, similar ideas where we're going to take folks in and it's a rotational program. So what that means is you um, participate in a project, and your job is to deliver the product, right? Like what product managers do. Um, but then, rather than continuing on that team indefinitely, um, you 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 have to rotate. And the idea is you get to see different parts of the business. So you know maybe you're learning all about how customer service is being transformed in our service cloud, and then nine months or twelve months later. You're learning how, you know, Adidas does e-commerce in our commerce cloud. Very different businesses, very different opportunities. But what you're doing is you're starting to see common elements between them. You're starting to see different industries. And by the end of a two-year program, you not only understand a number of different products and technologies and businesses, but you've learned, you've seen how different teams operate. You've seen different managers, you've seen different social dynamics, and then you end up uh, sort of matching with teams. It's a little bit like the medical soul system, right? Sure. You know, like teams know you, you know teams and you end up, you know, in a full-time product management role. That's such an interesting opportunity early in your career, right? Because I, it's sort of a roll of the dice for most people. Your first job, your really first is, manager yeah. and the structure around this is really, really unique. The interesting thing that I think we will get from it too is most people in their full-time jobs here don't rotate that often, right? Yeah, Totally. And it can create silos. It can create yeah. little subcultures. And I am very hopeful that this group of people ends up actually cross-pollinating the best ideas at Salesforce between the, the teams. And so I think it's a mistake to think of this associate product management program as just helping them. It's actually going to help us as well, yeah. um, especially given just how incredibly talented this group of people that is, which is just uh continues to inspire me.
1: Yeah, I think the rotational nature of it's really fascinating because expecting somebody that has no context and no data about what's what it's like inside a business to choose what team they want to be on or what department, that's pretty crazy. That's a that's a hard choice. Um, whereas if you're inside the program, you can build up your data sets, talk to people, network. Any type of aspirations for the program uh, other than, you know, train the future leaders of Salesforce? Um, Any other things you're excited about for it?
3: You know, I think I always look at, you know, what are the leaders that come out of it? Um, And that's really the way I think about it. So I want to look at the alumni of this program and I hope it's as successful as the program that Marissa created at Google. You know, whether it's the people who started companies, people who end up senior executives here at Salesforce, I'm hopeful that we can make it the you know a program where it's like you seek it out you know that's sure. where I want to go to learn how to be a great software executive um, and the cool thing about Salesforce and that has made me have such a great time here um, having been it I've had the privilege of being in a lot of great companies we kind of represent you know, uh, sort of the best of the best in software as a service. And, um, I think that to be, I really want the program to be a place of you want to go into this industry, this is the best place to start. So that's really my ambition for it. We have a lot to prove to get to that point, but that's my ambition for it.
1: That's exciting. So after Google, I'm sure the transition, uh, you know, out of Google is difficult. What was up next? Was it straight to Facebook at that point, or uh, yeah, was the next jump?
3: I started a moderately unsuccessful social network. Oh, okay, <laughs> between okay. Google, and friend, feed or- friend feed, friend okay, feed. Yeah, gotcha. so um,
1: I don't know if that was. I thought that was like after.
3: My bad. No, we were yeah. we were big in a few countries. Kind of, we were, we are big in Turkey. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I like it. Um, the uh, the red carpet gets rolled out every time <laughs> yeah. you get over there. No, so I'll, I'll give you a story. So I uh, in 2007. Um, I saw a lot of the early sites that were very social. Um, at the time, it was called user-generated content. It was a big <laughs> new concept. Um, and sites I'm like- still waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so you saw Wikipedia grow, Yelp grow, uh, and some early social networks like MySpace and Friendster. And- you know this idea that the internet was published content versus interactive, and people could really participate in the creation of the content. On the internet it just became fascinating to me, and it wasn't really Google's gravity gravitational center. You know, Google was really about information retrieval, you know, and search, and even in mapping it was very similar, right? It was a it was a utility as opposed to a social um, social tool. So, I became obsessed with it. And uh, my um, friend from Stanford, who I'd worked with on Google Maps as well, Jim Norris, and I, we left. We became entrepreneurs in residence at Benchmark Capital and uh, started prototyping ideas. And uh, we had this vision for uh, creating sort of a social activity feed for the internet. So, like every site that you participated in, you could see what your friends were doing on it. Like what. Netflix movies they were renting, what they had posted to Flickr, you know, these the, the, and uh, we ended up showing some early prototypes to Paul Buhite and Sanjeev Singh, who were the founder and first engineer on Gmail, who had left Google probably a year before us. They really loved what we did as well. They joined us as co-founders, so we ended up with kind of the creators of Gmail and the creators of Google Maps starting the social network, and it was a really, really fun time. Um, we had a brief period in 2008 where we were really like the hot company in the valley for a time. We we're in Business Week and got a lot of adoption very, very quickly. Um, and then the timing—I won't get exactly right—but somewhere near the end of 2008, Twitter just took off. Um, the uh, Obama and Oprah and Aston, Ashton Kutcher like all got on this Twitter service, all kind of around the same time, and we realized that there's not really a silver medal in social networking, you know, and um, we're very similar in spirit of follower model like Twitter. So very much about sharing and conversing about the news as opposed to, you know, your friends. And so we uh, about, we were kind of burned through about half of the money that we had raised um, and decided that uh, we were, we probably should sell the company. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't really going to be a great outcome for us. It was really interesting because all of this being the hot company in the valley and then getting our butts kicked happened within like a nine month period. Crazy. So it was just like the most tumultuous emotional ride yeah. of my life. And we ended up kind of doing a formal process to sell the company and ended up selling it to Facebook in August 2009.
1: What type of uh, experience was that? It, just, it sounds like a complete roller coaster,
3: right? So it was interesting. We had a private beta um, of the service and it was locked down, so we really didn't know how much it would grow, but the engagement was just okay. And the night before we were going to turn it on so that anyone could sign up, I was so nervous that I was basically in the fetal position in my living room <laughs> thinking, Don't oh my gosh, out. I'm a total failure. <laughs> and then we turned it on and it actually worked really well. Like we uh, ended up getting a lot of people exploring it. It was a time of, I think, a lot of innovation and in social networking. So there was a large appetite to try the service and... I went from being nervous that the whole thing was a failure to, oh, my gosh, it worked. And, you know, all the graphs are up and to the right by any metric of success. And you you have all the press reaching out, investors reaching out, uh, just incredibly good engagement. And then, you know, we once you saw sort of our peers sort of just completely outpace us, the reality sets in slower than it should. You know, if you were looking in from the outside, you'd be like, you lost, give up. But you always take about six months longer than that. So we did a redesign. It's like the dead cat bounce. You know, it's like <laughs> this redesign is going to change everything, guys. You know, and of course it didn't. Yeah. Um, and uh, but what's interesting about it, though, is in that process, we ended up doing a lot of innovative things. So we introduced the first like button on a newsfeed, and um, in addition to just comments. So. At the time, half the comments were cool, okay, you know, and it made it impossible to have a real conversation. So we ended up talking about, okay, how can we provide an outlet for people who want to acknowledge they saw something without, you know, (laughs) ruining the conversation and we also made it so everything appeared in real time. So as people were commenting, you didn't need to refresh your browser window, which seems table stakes now, but it was completely That's pretty uh, innovative wild, yeah. at the time. So we kind of became known as this innovator in social networking. Um, and as a consequence, when things did go south and we finally acknowledged the cold, harsh reality of the company not working, we were, had a very good reputation in the Valley. So actually, Twitter and Facebook and Google and a couple others were very interested in acquiring us. So It made me realize one thing that's really unique about Silicon Valley, which is I think, you know, if you started a hedge fund and it failed, no one would be like, you were innovative. Great job. (laughs) It's true. But it was interesting. Still to this day, I can say, yes, I was a co-founder of FriendFeed and people will bring up the innovative technology we introduced and be like, oh, so neat, the like button or that real-time feed you had, you know, completely changed my perspective on web pages. And it's that's really cool. It's really cool that in Silicon Valley, some of our most prominent failed businesses are still viewed as as like sort of beacons of innovation and inspiration. And there's this inherent optimism to Silicon Valley mm-hmm. that it's sort of the other side of the opportunism I mentioned before that I find really refreshing. so I feel really thankful that I'm in a place where I could have a business that by all business measures was a failure, but also ended up a great financial outcome for the team because of we got acquired by Facebook. but also it's something I think is still celebrated um, and I think that's something that's very unique to the technology industry and very unique to Silicon Valley
2: when we interviewed Peter Schwartz about what were some of his biggest like influences, he was talking about this this ad that uh, Apple ran for this device. I forgot. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 The Newton. And it was like this changed Silicon Valley because of this, this silly ad that they created in like eight weeks with like all this sort of stuff. And it inspired a generation of people to be like, wow, is that really possible? Like, is this thing that they just depicted in an ad really a possible thing? And I think, you know, it's kind of like we're standing on the shoulders of giants sort of mentality. With technology, which is just the inspiration of, you know, the Star Wars holograms, you know, like Magic Leap founders have talked about that being a huge inspiration for them. I think that that's what's so exciting is that if your team is pushing the pace of innovation, like someone will find out. And if they do find out, you know, whether it's they're acquiring your technology or they're, you know, aqua hiring or whatever it is, you know, if you're putting your best foot forward, like you'll probably be recognized.
3: Yeah, there's an inherent optimism that i think the silicon valley represents that you know it's useful innovation is inherently interesting because it's changing the status quo and it's forcing you to reimagine you know what the world could be and that i think the doesn't always lead to great commercial results but often subsequent businesses do and i think it's really important because I give a lot. Of, I talk to a lot of uh, Fortune 100 companies now about innovation, and we we talk a lot about sort of being in this fourth industrial revolution with, you know, 3D printing and supply chain innovation and AI. All these things are happening at the same time, and a lot of companies are trying to figure out how do we become more innovative. What they mean is, how can we move faster given the pace of technology change around us? How can we reimagine our business model? How can we reimagine our own product and customer service and all of that? And I think a lot of the advice I give is around accepting failure because, right. you know, in the face of new technologies, if you recall when the iPhone came out, the first apps were flashlight, you know, it, uh, just some basic photo editing applications. It was somewhat literal uses of the phone and the, the, like, the light and the screen. Um, they were gimmicky. And then from those gimmicky things, those gimmicky photo editing apps came Instagram. Right. Because you took the photo editing app and the photo filters and then you added some social things because it's connected to the Internet. And all of a sudden you have a new medium, you know, and uh, you could say the same for things like WhatsApp. Um, and I I think that often new technologies, like especially new um, uses of those technologies can impair like gimmicks initially, but they really represent new modes of communication, new modes of usage. And I think that, you know, one of the things we take pride on here at Salesforce is like, okay, we're going to partner with you and how to think about these new technologies, how to like actually change the way you do things and not just translate your old behaviors into the new. I think it's really important to not be cynical about these new technologies, but to like really internalize them, have that beginner's mind about okay, what does this mean? How sure. long well my behaviors change? That's why it's great to people like Peter are amazing because yeah. they're so he's such a wonderful person. The way he looks at a new technology, and he's always just excited, you know, and that's infectious. Um, and I think it's an amazing part of the valley.
1: How do you go about keeping your culture on your team and inside Salesforce uh, excited and enthusiastic? Right, because if you look at the news on any given day, it's like doom and gloom about technology and a lot of other things. So, how do you fight back and keep the culture focused on you know the results you're doing and what you're accomplishing?
3: It's a wonderful question. I do think that the culture around technology has changed, and they like social. Uh, And societal expectations about technology have shifted dramatically. When I worked at Facebook, I would go on an airplane and people would be saying to me, I love Facebook, I want a dislike button. That was like the number one conversation people wanted to have with me. I want a dislike button. I think people are really questioning sort of, you know, technology addiction Um, will technologies like artificial intelligence, um, displace uh, workers, you know, is this good for society? And it's not a presumption that it is anymore. Um, people want to see it. Our answer at Salesforce is that we live our values. And so we're not just about technology, we're about our values and our values. You could ask any employer around here, they could tell you it's trust, customer success, innovation, and equality, and I think the way that plays out in practice is when we think about new technologies, we don't just think about them in isolation. We think about their impact on society and our customers. And so we, we do a lot of things with like workforce development. We have a program called Trailhead where we're actually training people for free and how to use these new technologies. And we're creating millions of jobs through this platform. So actually, you'll see here, I think... I hope that we don't have the arrogance of some other technology companies around um, sort of our technologies just being inherently good. We recognize that it's sort of how you use them, but we want to actively participate in the solution, you know, in the workforce development, in making these technologies accessible to more people. And I think that's been a really wonderful differentiation for our brand. When I recruit people, a lot of, uh, especially people in engineering and product want to work here because they want to work in a values-driven company. Um, And I think now with the social pressures on the technology industry, that's becoming sort of a, sort of a defining characteristic of our company. And actually even our customers are seeking us out because of our values. Um, And I think it's something that a lot of other technology companies sort of need to embrace is it's, it's not just about the technology anymore.
1: And let's circle back to the uh, APM program just for a moment. Uh, So I'm curious, who is your favorite person you met at the Google APM program?
3: (laughs) So uh, the unambiguous answer is my wife. Okay. Uh, So, yeah. So um, I actually interviewed my wife. uh, Okay. No joke. So she was in the second APM class. I was one of her peer interviewers. We were friends for about a year before we started dating. It wasn't sketchy at all. And uh, anyway, we've been married for now 13 years.
1: And uh, was she your co-founder in uh, Equip?
3: No. Okay, gotcha, no, gotcha. And uh, yeah, she remained at Google uh, longer than I did. I Did she, gotcha, I gotcha. Did she work on Maps? No. Um, so she worked on uh, Google News and Google Image Search and then on our, some of the advertising products. I wanted to ask about Maps because, like, did you feel like it was kind
2: of your baby and when you left to create a company that you're, like, kind of leaving a part
3: of you behind? I did, Google Maps was one of the most fun times I had at Google. So uh, there was about seven of us, give or take, um, that launched it. So a very, very small team. When we launched it in February 2005, and we added satellite imagery that summer, it became sort of a uh, sort of cultural phenomenon. I remember when the Lonely Island guys um, (laughs) made a song that mentioned Google Maps on Saturday Night Live. And I think uh, a comic, one of the Sunday comics, like put Google Maps in the satellite imagery, looking down at their house, like in the comics, and you realize that you've like hit the mainstream with this phenomenon. And um, it was amazing. I was 25, and you know, felt this pride of authorship over this thing that had really impacted the world. The thing that I feel the most pride about, though, is um, most technologies don't really live on. You know, most if you look at you know the websites that are popular during the dot com era, other than the Amazons and the Googles, most most don't exist anymore, right? Um, you look at uh, you know the old phones like Blackberries and Trios and all that. And they're, you know, maybe exist in smaller form, but they're not really setting the agenda anymore. That the team that's been building Google Maps has just continued to innovate, you know, ended up on the iPhone, you ended up with Street View. Um, It's, it's really remarkable. So I feel a lot of pride that the the product and the technology, no thanks to me, but it's really lived on and continue to innovate and thrive. And that's something that uh, is hard to do in technology and something I feel a lot of pride about.
2: I remember calling my mom from West Point and saying, when did dad put the Suburban in the uh, in the driveway? And she's like, how do you know that? I'm like, oh, I saw it on Google Maps. Um, and like, we used to like, it was like, you know, feeling, I'm like, you know, from Oakland, like it, it's freezing cold in New York. And I'm just like looking at imagery of like my friend's houses and stuff like that, just cause I missed home. But it's like truly, I mean, I remember the satellite view launched Cause I was like, this is the most amazing thing. We just used to like scroll around the earth and just like, look at stuff. It's so you crazy. You and
3: like 90 million other people did <laughs> yeah. that on the first day. It was awesome. <laughs> and it did it, did it crash servers? No, we stayed up still proud of that too. I mean, it was just, uh, it was really fun though. And it's, it is every entrepreneur will tell you that moment of finding product market fit. You, you really know it. Um, and those moments are just the ultimate euphoria, you know, cause I've certainly made, I made a lot of other products I don't put on my resume at Google. <laughs> Didn't work out. <laughs> that one's there. And it's for that reason, you know, that moment, I think every single person was like, I want to look at the top of my house right now. Yeah, and sure. uh, it was awesome. It was a really fun experience.
1: So when did the uh, genesis or the starting point of the idea that became Quip, when do you think that
3: started? Yeah, so I was at Facebook when mobile really changed the company. So when I started at Facebook, uh, it was almost exclusively desktop usage. The iPhone came out right when I got there. Um, And then Android, you know, subsequently came out. And um, it was uh, over the course of the years that I was there you really saw it sort of exponentially take off. I think consumer software and social software in particular you just it 's much better on your mobile device right because it 's a casual use thing, so sure. when you 're on the subway it's great to to check Facebook and use it and so we ended up with a very kind of awkward transition to mobile um, we um, our mobile app and I'm I'm responsible for both the good and the bad. Our mobile app was like really bad for a while, bad technology decisions on my part, and then we made it much better, but then we didn't monetize it very effectively. So if you recall that first year after Facebook's IPO, there was it was very tumultuous and that was really about this transition to mobile both from a product and a business model perspective. We finally got through it and it was really it was hard but worthwhile. It's one of those great kind of like career-defining moments to get through those trans- challenging, disruptive moments. But what it really internalized for me was the impact of mobility on technology. And we saw people who, uh, in the developing world, had never used Facebook on a desktop before, you know, truly mobile only. And it's, I think, generally in technology, you see enterprise software kind of uh, follow consumer behavior. Um, and so... I just started thinking a lot about okay, what is our work going to look like um, if these mobile phones have as big of an impact on the work as we've already seen right. at Facebook, um, and it was clear to me that like the age of uh, you know productivity where you're writing on a virtual eight and a half by eleven piece of paper was probably not going to be the state of the art, you know, once everything had transitioned to mobile. And so that was, that was our vision for Quip is like, okay, if you were to reimagine productivity and collaboration with, you know, these multi multiple devices and multiple screens and the omnipresent internet in mind from day one, what would you do? And that was really where we came with Quip.
1: Very cool. So I'm curious to hear about, you know, how was your mindset at the start of this company, right? Because you'd been off your experience at Friendster and you had seen cool. some things right, at uh, Facebook. Um, Facebook already went public after this point, right?
3: Yeah, we went public in 2012.
1: So you, you, you've seen a lot now, right? you, yeah. you get to, You've seen the IPO, you've seen uh, a lot of different people inside technology. Were you feeling really confident in this idea or was did you recognize like, oh, this is still the early days? Um, I just need to get you know, busy building?
3: It's a wonderful question. It was, I felt a lot of confidence in my own abilities relative to FriendFeed when I had never started a company before. Um, I remember, you know, just being online, trying to learn about all the terminology of venture capital because I felt so uneducated with FriendFeed. The thing I remember joking around to my co-founder, Kevin Gibbs about though, was it was a little too easy. You know, it was interesting with FriendFeed, you know, I'd never started a company before. You're you know trying to get investors to pay attention you really have to be scrappy and push for it the when i started quip in contrast uh, a it was a very frothy time in the valley and b i had successfully started a company before so I remember when we raised our series A, I look over at Kevin and I'm like, you know, this was a lot easier than what I had at the first time. <laughs> I was like, back in my day, you know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I I did have some concern that, you know, you know, I think part of that process of socializing your ideas with investors, convincing employees to join you, the it is hard, but it's it's good that it's hard. It forces you to like really be intellectually honest about your your ideas and your business. Um, I think we, uh, we did fine though. So I, I, but I do, I remember having that paranoia. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this too easy? You know, are we, are they telling us it's a good idea, you know, and just to be nice, you know, or is it really good? I felt very strongly about the thesis though. Um, I, I believe in technology, a lot of business opportunities and risks come up in platform shifts. So, you know, the move from mainframe to the PC, the move from PCs to sort of internet connected um, devices, which created Salesforce as an example, you know, and the cloud delivery model, the advent of mobile devices, and now the advent of artificial intelligence, you know, and there's probably more. I think people are saying maybe it's AR and VR. Um, I think there's a lot of, you. it's clear that like AI is in that category. I'm not sure about the rest yet. Those are moments where, Uh, I would say companies that embrace those platforms and those technologies um, can often sort of define the next generation of customer experiences and business models. And companies that resist it often can end up disrupted in the traditional sense of the word, you know, um, the state of the art sort of moves. Um, and so I really felt that the advent of sort of mobile devices was definitely going to change the way we work. And it was a matter of maybe it wasn't our solution, but I felt, you know, strong uh, confidence in the thesis.
1: And do you think that that confidence was bolstered? I mean, obviously, it was by all of the uh, domain expertise you had, because I mean, were, were you doing calculus in your head that said, basically, I know more about this than the majority of people? Therefore, uh, I'm just curious about what your thought process was like. When did you know, like, OK, this is yeah, this is it. I'm going to take the money and do it.
3: You know, I think that the experience I had really helped. Um, I'll tell you the things that were easier the second time than the first time. Sure. Number one was recruiting. You know, your network gets much larger over the course of your career. So when we were growing that initial team, uh, you know, we were able to really tap to our network, tap into our networks, and grow that initial team much more easily. I also knew how to recruit more effectively as well, um, and. Uh, my experience with seeing the uh, behaviors of consumers change at Facebook gave me a lot more intuition about sort of what the workplace dynamics would be as well. Um, I do think, though, that what I've observed broadly, especially in the technology industry, which is different than other industries, is experience cuts both ways. Um, Yeah, I think there's I really, um, I love the fact that so many great technology companies are started by young people with less experience. And I think it's in part, there was a quote that I I actually don't know who to attribute it to. But someone asked, like, why were they able to succeed where other companies weren't? And someone said, well, they were too naive to know it couldn't be done. And I love that quote because it does capture the inherent sort of beginner's mind that people have uh, that don't have the, that aren't tainted with seeing things that haven't worked in the past. and. Sometimes uh, you know if you look at, uh, for example, a lot of food delivery applications. You know, maybe if you had seen Webvan fail in the you know late '90s, you wouldn't have had the courage to right. start the mobile one. But the advent of GPS uh, and mobile devices and a bunch of other things maybe made that economic. Landscape. Yeah, look at
2: Chewy. Yeah. Right. Like that was the whole dot com thing was like, yeah, pet food, pet food services. And then now Chewy's crushing.
3: Exactly. And so I think, you know, it's really I think the biggest challenge I feel so privileged to have the experience I have, no doubt. But it's very important that something I try to work on is continue to have a beginner's mind about uh, ideas and technologies because time changes, technologies change, platforms change. And it's really important for us here at Salesforce, very important for our customers to not write off old ideas, you know, and to constantly reassess what you think you know. Um, and so, yes, the experience, I, I valued it and it helped me a lot. And I also try to check that experience often and go into every experience uh, with the beginner's, know, mind, with the beginner's mind.
2: I would add there too that the younger mindset of like, of course, this can be done. I think, you know, the the other side of that blade is like, having no clue about why people buy. And like, that's the thing that I think there's so much wisdom in being around for a longer time of like seeing how people change buying behaviors, because I think that people, younger founders don't realize that people buy for all sorts of different reasons, not just the reason that you think that you're solving for. Right. And I think it's just one of those important things to remember that if you don't have Diverse folks on your team that have experiences of like, hey, I've been buying, you know, software for 15 years. Like, let me tell you, people don't always buy because it's the top right in the magic quadrant. Like people buy the bottom left, you know, like that happens every day. So I just think that there's, especially, you know, when you're buying, you know, when you're selling B2B, right? It's just a different kind of world.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, it's such it speaks to the importance, I think, for entrepreneurs to surround themselves with good advice. And and when it was interesting, that's how uh, when I started Quip, I knew Mark Benioff socially. Um, and just because Silicon Valley is kind of a small place and you, you run into each other. And I remember when I was starting Quip, I, I had this realization, I've never sold software before. Yeah, ever. I was going to ask you that. I, I, I had only done ad-supported software in my life. And so I thought who's, who's good at selling <laughs> software? And so, and I um, ended up reaching out to Mark and he became an angel investor in our first round of fundraising. And uh, the most remarkable part is actually my first real exposure to the Salesforce culture. Uh, I remember going into, um, I can't remember if it was his office or his house, I think it was his house, and showing him an early prototype of Quip. And he calls Parker Harris, his co-founder and CTO in the room. He's like, Parker, can you spend an hour with them and give them some advice? <laughs> and I remember thinking like, why are they being so generous with their time? You know, and it was just this culture of transparency and openness. And this kind of, we we use a lot of sort of Hawaiian phrases here, but this Ohana culture. And just because like, Mark was a friend of mine. He was an investor. Park was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll spend an hour with you and give you feedback on this. And I remember thinking, these are literally the nicest people I've ever met (laughs) in Silicon Valley. And I didn't quite understand why. And then you spend some time here and you're like, this is just the way Salesforce works. And it actually full circle, we ended up being acquired by Salesforce probably four years later.
2: When I started using Quip for the first time, the thing that kind of like hit my mind about this, someone who worked on consumer products Built this for a business person, right? Like that's what it felt like to me. Was like someone who understood like why a individual user would be doing these things, but like tailored that with like the lens of of business. Like hearing your story, like solidified that in my mind. It's like, hey, it's like user first principles. Like probably a lot of stuff that you worked on at Google, Facebook.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we were probably the first productivity app with a like button. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, I yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, we. I, our, you know, that was part of, as you heard, sort of part of our thesis, and we, we do feel like, and actually, it's really, I've been, it was so cool to see Slack successful IPO, to see the success of companies like Atlassian. I think that there's, uh, I think, I feel got a kind of pride that Salesforce has been sort of pioneering sort of user friendly software for years, and to see, I think, it really speaks to the fact in this era of bring your own device and. Those business apps exist side-by-side with all your consumer apps on your phone, right? And if one feels clunky and one feels elegant you notice now in a way that maybe you didn't before. And I think consumer standards are higher. And, um, you know, well, it's a little bit of probably when I started, Quip was a liability. I hadn't sold software. The asset I had was understanding consumer product design and understanding kind of like the way people use consumer apps. And um, it's interesting because I actually had a conversation with someone who had been in the same sort of segment of software their entire life. And I realized I'd gone from search to maps, to social networking, to productivity software, and now um, CRM. And I was realizing, why wow, I really, I guess, I just like you know the full stack translating into other areas. But it was interesting though because I do think you know, in the spirit of, I think innovation means sort of looking at a problem from a different angle and finding solutions that other people didn't think of. I've tried to embrace that rather than think of it as a liability and entering new areas as saying, okay, well. I'm going to have the humility to understand I don't know everything, but I'm going to embrace the newness because it's like once you're in an area for a while, sometimes you end up not seeing the forest for the trees um, and thinking the same way as everyone else. So um, I've tried to embrace that aspect of my career.
1: So, Brett, you've got to work with a number of uh, amazing individuals and um, three of them are, uh, you know, notable, their names that people would recognize. I would love to uh, talk about kind of like your biggest lesson learned from each of these three people. So you worked with uh, Marissa at Google, Mark at Facebook and Mark Benioff here. Let's start with Marissa. What Only the people whose
3: names start with M. just to keep it. informal rule. Just keep it easy. Yeah.
1: Um, and then obviously yourself too. And at the end, we can talk about, you know, maybe what you learned about yourself or, uh, you know, working um, with your teams there. Um, but yeah, so what'd you learn from Marissa or what was the big takeaway there?
3: Marissa, I worked for her for five years, really influential in my life because she was my first boss. Um, and the thing that I took away from her was the focus on building a team. Um, it was interesting because, She's a wonderful product designer and thought leader in that space. But when I look at her legacy at Google, uh, you look at things like the associate product manager program and all the people she individually recruited. Um, And, you know, I'm biased because a lot of them are my friends. But I just think, (laughs) what a remarkable group of people. And I think that uh, sometimes I remember with my first company, I don't think I spent enough time on team building and recruiting and it's an investment, and it's a skill. It's mm-hmm. like any other skill that you develop. And I always think back to her and think, okay, I need to spend more time developing my team and recruiting and thinking about sort of that aspect of building a company and building a team. Um, and she was remarkable at it, and she's she's uniquely skilled at it. So that's something, and probably illustrated by the fact I started this associate product manager program here. I think that was inspired by by her leadership. Mark Zuckerberg um, probably was the most uh, strategic and thoughtful leader I worked for, always thinking like a decade out. Um, he has a really Socratic way of, of talking. We used to walk around Palo Alto for three hours at a time just talking about what we wanted to do with the product and the company. And it was very intellectually challenging. You know, if you had sloppy thinking, you know, he would he would you know find it. <laughs> and uh, I think when I was thinking about when I started Quip and thinking about like these long-term platform shifts, I was always trying to think about where I wanted to position the company for the long-term and not just trying to be scrappy. And I think sometimes at a startup, you're always worried about that next milestone, right? And I think it can lead to some short-term thinking. um, And I think I had better balance, uh, you know, due to his influence on me. Um, And Mark Benioff, like he's uh, probably been the most impactful of the three for me. Uh, I think that the thing that... There's, there's a lot uh, that I've learned from him, but probably the main thing is seeing the culture and the values at Salesforce. Um, and I think it was most prominent with the tech lash that sort of, I think, really been amplified over the past couple of years. Um, the seeing this company's ability to have a conversation about hard problems and uh, make hard decisions uh, on, in the face of really, really complex issues. I think illustrates the importance of culture. And I think a lot of tech companies ca- talk about culture, but it's often lip service. And it's often when you're at the high, you know, when everyone wants to be at your company, because it's the hot company. And then you see a lot of companies going through struggles, and all of a sudden, their their culture, you can see right through it, right? Yeah. And I realized that, you know, what it really means to be a values driven company. Um, and it was interesting because if you add up all three, I think it's it's all things outside of technology. And I think over the course of my career, thanks to their mentorship, I've sort of become a more complete leader rather than just like a technologist. And it's sort of been adding to, you know, what you, you sort of start off making web pages and you end up trying to at least hoping to be a good leader.
2: I wanted to ask you about speed. It was one of the things uh, that, you know, you've said in the past is super invaluable to you. And uh, I'm just curious, like, why you think speed is so important for, you know, a, a, a startup founder or a small business founder or anything like that?
3: Yeah. So uh, when I left Google, I was an entrepreneur in residence at Benchmark and sat uh, in a group of four offices with a gentleman named Dave Goldberg, um, who, sh- who was Cheryl Sandberg's husband, Mike Cassidy, who's a serial entrepreneur in Nirov Tolia, um, who started most recently Nextdoor on the social network. And they had all had a lot more experience than I had. So I would just like wander into their offices asking for advice and uh, extremely impactful for me because especially in the dynamics of entrepreneurs and investors, they were on the entrepreneur side. So they would tell me all the the secrets, you know, of, of how to talk to venture capitalists and like, you know, what they, their experience is. And Mike Cassidy had this philosophy around speed that just had such a huge impact. He's like, "Speed is the most important thing." I'm like, "What about your strategy? He's like, speed's more important than that." <laughs> and I don't know; I've probably put words in his mouth, but he was making the argument that it's the one thing you have as a startup that can't be replicated in larger companies. Totally agree. And similarly, he's like you can, if you make mistakes ten times faster than you know other companies, you will win. You know, and. So uh he and he brought it, he has a really fun presentation, a great person to have on this podcast, by the way, if you want my recommendation. Love that. Um and he so he was talking about every aspect in recruiting, in product development, and business development and sales, just speed, 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 speed. And so actually at Quip, we um really tried to I, I brought it up with Kevin and we were talking about this initial team that we wanted to build. And we realized that we had a big enough network of people we wanted to work with. Like, why draw out the recruiting process for the first few people we've worked with them before? So we invited them all to lunch and dinner. We brought offers to the meal. And by the end of the meal, we said, we'd like you to work with you. Here's an offer. And they were like... You brought it to dinner? You didn't even tell me what the dinner was about. I'm like, well, we've been thinking about this for a while. And actually, uh, I want to say like six out of the eight accepted their offers. Um, That's and, incredible. And I think it was just, you know, if you think about the contrast, you're an entrepreneur, you're um, uh, you're essentially saying you're differentiating on this, how fast you can move, how special they are. And we're really communicating that through the process. So it was really fun to have that mental exercise. Like, could I do this 10 times faster? You know, and you you often can, not but if you can, it's often something your, your bigger um, peers in the industry can't replicate.
1: Well, Brett, thanks so much for being generous with your time. We have a hard stop coming up. Uh, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Is there anything that you're working on right now, whether it's a thought or something you're excited about that you want to leave our listeners with?
3: It was so fun to have the privilege to start a couple companies, and I think that um, the the thing that I just, you know, want to come back to is just sort of the optimism around the opportunities that technology affords, you know, and I think that it's why it's so fun to be an entrepreneur is because every time you think, oh, all the good ideas have been taken, another technology shift happens and incredible new businesses get created, and so... Um, I think it's always a good time to, you know, think about new opportunities to to start businesses, to innovate where other people haven't. And it's probably the best, best part about being in this industry.
1: Wise words to everyone listening. We'll see you next time. See ya. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce. They're a customer times five, Twilio, and Catera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.